Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Uzanski and Dave Friedman. Tonight, we have an echo a little bit. Yeah, we did. But it went away. Now it's gone. Now it's gone. All right. Well, I want to introduce Billy Duffy from the cult on our show tonight. We are honored to have you on the show. Really pleased to have you on. Thank you. Nice How to you be doing? here. Great. Dave, how are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. It's been a another long, day in long a long week. year. <laughs> <laughs> another day in a long life. Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, yeah. So I feel like today is an interesting day because today is two top secret releases from you, Billy, and also Dave. You had your uh, top secret Gretsch guitar uh announcement this morning yes then, we yeah we teased it yeah and then dave you guys teased some top secret new release coming as well yeah we did although it was a tease and some dealer violated it and get out so well yeah of course this is normal yeah yeah you've been violated <laughs> we have a release already. date we have a release date and we somehow get violated and of course the whole the well-laid plans for um we'll still go through with them but the well-laid plans of uh, a fun little uh release is ruined <laughs> i'm not going to say any more about it because i'm still doing a little clip video release tomorrow so good good that's good so if you yeah. don't know you might not no you know what i do a show with you and i don't even freaking know what the hell's going on <laughs> Yeah, so it's that's like how weird. it's weird, isn't it? You have like, like for me, I like I have a kind of an internet world, and then there's like my real world, you know, like my day to day, mundane existence, and then there's this like, like a lot of people, I suppose, there's this like socially presented existence that people probably think you have. It's pretty right. funny, but yeah, right. you know, I try and keep mine as close to the truth as I can. You mm -hmm. know, um, don't want to debunk too many myths but um <laughs> the guitar thing's good yeah the guitar thing's good hopefully i mean it's not been made yet we're kind of testing the water with a couple of prototypes with um it's sort of a development of the white falcon but making it a bit sort of smaller and more minimalist and uh mm. you know in a more compact package to keep the the essential ingredients of the guitar so you can get it in a somewhat smaller easier to handle package because uh as my lead singer mr asprey says you know that is a man's guitar you get hold of a gretsch white falcon and put it through a marshall stack um yeah. you know and and you you really need to man up because it's uh it's definitely quite a visceral experience it's a wild ride <laughs> yeah it's a lot different than playing it in a you know a pub at about two watts you know yeah. you get that thing can really uh take off so it's a lot, yeah, it's a lot of fun though. And Gretsch's been great. I have a great relationship with them and they're very professional, easy to work with. So we'll see. Hopefully it'll work out. People will like it. I dig it. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. So how did you, uh, how did you gravitate to playing a White Falcon in the first place? Very good question. And Jermaine, um, after, after in England, after punk rock, um, ended, um, which, for most of us was kind of when the pistols broke up. So by literally by the end of 78, 
you know, a lot of people who were like fans of it were like, hmm, it's kind of done now. Um, we were all starting to look, I consider my generation as kind of being the fans of punk rock, amongst other things. We're the kids who were in the audience watching the Pistols and the Clash and the Damned and the Banshees and then Generation X. My, my kind of generation saw that, didn't want to copy it, but was inspired by it, you know. And so within sort of three or four years of seeing that kind of music, and then that music obviously turned us on to the bands that influenced the punk bands. So then we got into the MC5, the Stooges, the Dolls. If we weren't already into them, Alice Cooper, all the kind of, you know, punk rock approved um, American bands that didn't sell a lot of records. Um, the Doors were okay too. Um, I think what, what I'm getting at is that I think we didn't want to, I didn't want to try and be a copy of a punk band. I wanted to find my own thing. And I think a lot of other guitar players did. And I just gravitated towards a Gretsch through happenstance more than anything else. Um, there was a little bit of a rockabilly revival um, around 1980 in London. Um, it became a thing called psychabilly, which was kind of punk rock, rockabilly fusion. Um, the Stray Cats came over and kind of blew up in England. And um, obviously the Gretsch thing just seemed to be something that was a bit of a departure for what most of the punk bands used, which were usually Les Pauls, Telecasters, for the most part. If you look at most punk bands, it was a Les Paul or a Telecaster, kind of. And that was it. I'd seen White Falcons, Neil Young has some memorable pictures, Malcolm Young. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think who else we had. Sylvain Sylvain in the New York Dolls had a White Falcon. Um, and that was pretty exciting too. So, you know, those. The, I always thought it was kind of a great mythical guitar. And uh, I'm trying to think when I switched, I mostly used Les Pauls and Les Paul Juniors, trying to be, you know, a bit of a Johnny Thunders wannabe or a Steve Jones wannabe. And mm. eventually, um, I, jo I joined a band. I, I got. I, I was working in London and I joined a band, and the band was called Theatre of Hate. And the lead singer used the Gretsch, a single anniversary. It's kind of bizarre guitar where the, the pickup's at the neck, then there's no bridge pickup. And um, he just said to me when they were kind of auditioning me, they said, so I showed up with Les Paul Jr. And they said, so like, if you get the gig with the band, what would you get? And I said, well, I'd get a Gretsch White Falcon probably if I got like a real job in a real band who went on tour and, you know, and, um, and so it came to pass. I got the job. I took all my savings and bought a White Falcon in London in 1981. And um, I've been sort of known with them ever since. Do you still have that guitar? No, no. I'm not very sentimental. Ah, okay. <laughs> that, well, I had to trade up. A lot of times I had to trade up because I wasn't awash with money. And they were very expensive. Well, they still are very expensive yeah. guitars even back then. Um, it took all my savings, uh, the huge sum of £800 sterling, to buy one. And I had to trade one to get a different one. I always wanted a single cutaway one, and I could never find one um, initially. So I had to have the double cutaway one, and I got the absolute worst model, which was stereo. And the stereo <laughs> wasn't split between both pickups. It was, it was split. Each pickup was split between treble and bass which I've come to understand was for country picking. 
so you can put kind of some sort of tight reverb on the bottom strings and um and a different kind of delay or reverb on the high strings and you had to have a stereo cable or guitar cord oh, or whatever you call right. it right? anyway blah 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 so that was the first one i had and i just went through a series of them and um eventually got a mid-70s um baldwin era which was not their finest hour in terms <laughs> of manufacture but I, I always got along with it. I liked the neck, I liked the tremolo, um, and I hated the pickup. So the first thing I did when I got that guitar and the cult got going, uh, I'd met Seymour Stein's son when I was in Los Angeles the first time, and he kind of befriended the band, and he took me up to meet his dad up in Santa Barbara, and he said, well, if you want to pick up for a Gretz, I'll make you one, and he made me one in 1986. And um, that resolved to me the worst issue with that mid seventies Falcon because everything else about it's great, stays in tune pretty good. Mm. Um, the neck, as I say, the neck's got a good feel to it. The tremolo's nice. It's just the pickups were just so underpowered that so what, um, I resolved that, and um, that was it basically. So, what kind of pickup was it? Um, he well, in, at, at the, t the one at the, it, it was a pickup that ended in the bin. The one that was in it, and uh, the, I, he just made—he specially wound something for me. Hmm. I, I think I sent him a record. He said, "Send me a recording." We were in the studio, and Dave, you'll want to talk about this later. I think maybe <laughs> doing um, the first version of the Electric album, mm -hmm. and I think somebody had a Telecaster with a humbucker in it, and I and I sort of sent him a recording of that, and I said, "I kind of want it to sound Gretchy, but I want it to have." I wanted to have the percussion of a Les Paul on the bottom end, but I still wanted to keep the chime. And the closest approximation of all that I could get was kind of a telly with a humbucker in the bridge somebody had done. So, And he made me one on that. And then a, 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 a what Gretsch would call reverse engineered, which is they've taken that old pickup from the 80s and that's what's in all my signature guitars they basically dismantled it analyzed it and all my signature guitars that i'm lucky enough to still sell um surprisingly we sell a lot they um they just have that copy of that pickup in it that's great awesome yeah that's it and that's it and then you know i mean i still use less pause i'm just more sun because the call the biggest when we broke through as a band, particularly in the UK and Canada, was with the song She Saw Sanctuary. And obviously, there was a video for that, and they have the white guitar, and I mm -hmm. kind of became synonymous with that guitar. But I've always used Les Pauls as well, in equal measure, um, you know, because they do different things, right? You mean equal measure in live and in the studio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I never, I did do, the, we, we did an album called Love. The first album was called Dreamtime and it never came out in America. It came out in like Canada and Japan and a few places. And I only used the Falcon on that. And then on the Love album, pretty much was 99% White Falcon. But by the time we got to Electric, I started doing, wanting to get some different textures and sounds and started bringing in Ian had a Telecaster that I used and that he'd bought some kind of weird Vox 12 string teardrop. They appeared in London. There was some story that they'd been found in a warehouse. And so in the mid eighties, 
all these voxes. Susie Sue from the Banshees had one, and suddenly everybody was playing a vox teardrop. They apparently they'd been found in boxes in parts and reassembled. And uh, Ian got one that was in a video, and I used that a little bit. You know, just like you do. A few mm-hmm. albums in, you just start reaching for different um, tools to try and explore different sounds. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I lost track. <laughs> you, okay. you asked yeah. a couple things. I was going to. Um, so, yeah, you know, so I, I did bring this up uh, when we were private before, but um, there was a, a, a big departure. So you did a love record, which was the first real U.S. Um, yeah, release. it was the first U.S. release, <laughs> and it and and it definitely had uh, you know um all you know an alternative slash I don't know what you want to call it exactly uh, art art house uh, something <laughs> sound brilliance brilliance actually because amazing, it is brilliance. amazing record <laughs> um uh and then you know stuff radically changed when you got to electric mm-hmm. yeah, which was yeah, also well, a he- great record. <laughs> Well, thank you. It did. Um, there's a there's a few reasons why they're, they're fairly, you know, some of them are pragmatic in that, you know, we did the Love album and we then went on tour and toured the world and went around America and got exposed to more of a rock based culture. You know, in the UK, there was still an enormous hangover from punk rock mm-hmm. and there was a bit of kind of a lot of negativity against rock unless you were like a metal band and that was like a subcultural thing, that was a world in of its own. You know, Mm -hmm. if you were like in the, in the quote unquote mainstream of modern current guitar bands, you know, guitar solos weren't allowed. There was lots of rules and regulations kind of about what you should and shouldn't do in terms of creatively. And one of the things that used to annoy me and Ian was that kind of, um, it seemed to be run out of about three pubs in London and a little clique of journalists who got very powerful would make and break bands. And, um, you know, we they, they had their, their, like anything else, you know, they had their artists that they loved who could never do any wrong. And if you were a band that didn't fit or you were from the provinces or considered, you know, backwards because you were from the north of England or something and you weren't in the club, then you would get a lot of negativity. So um, that was one of the things, I think, that pushed us towards the real going like hard on the psychedelia. Ian grew his hair and, you know, the sound was just happenstance. It was me trying to get the band more and more leaning in a heavier rock direction, trying to kind of bring some of my, like the Stooges and stuff like that into the call. Um <laughs> Bearing in mind, we'd had a hit with She Sells Sanctuary, which was sort of like a dance song with like that kind of Celtic. I don't know what that riff style is. I'm, I still don't know, but whatever it was, I came up with it. And we'd had a hit with that. So basically everybody said, oh, I don't know what you're doing, but do more of it. You know, <laughs> off you go. And, it, and we went in the studio and, and, and we had such a great time doing that album. It was a lot of fun. Um and so that album was great. Um, circumstances led us to use Big Country's drummer as a session. Um, mm-hmm. Our drummer we'd had, unfortunately, wasn't really capable of doing the record, um, although he did play on She Sells Sanctuary. Um, and ironically, 
Mark Brzezicki, the drummer from Big Country, is in the video, but he didn't play on the song. <laughs> That's the kind of weird stuff that happens around the call. And there's another long, boring story about that that I won't go into. But suffice it to say, the only song on the Love album that Mark Brzezicki didn't play on, he's in the video for. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, put it this way, the drummer was temporarily incarcerated when we were shooting the video, so... <laughs> We had to find. We had to borrow another drummer who happened to be driving through that time. Anyway, so so basically, we do that album. We've had th we had three hits in England. We tour around. We come to America. We're doing a lot of. In, at that time in the United States, um, there was a big college radio, was what would support bands like the Cull, mm. and you know all of the the post punk indie bands, all of them, everybody. It was college radio. What, whatever band you can think of from sort of 1979 onwards to like 1984, it was college radio supported as primarily in America. And, um, and obviously Canada had kind of an Anglophile thing. And that's what we got our initial support with. And then we just started to break through to more mainstream rock stations a little bit. I remember in Seattle, we went and <laughs> we did our only radio interview with a proper American like rock DJ. On, on a rock station and me and Ian go in there and the guy's talking normally and then the minute we go live his voice changes he becomes this entirely new person starts talking like in platitudes and called us the cure so that was my first experience of like <laughs> you know you guys are great um, I love the cure you're the best I, and it was just like what so <laughs> It was a little bit of an inauspicious start, but we did do pretty well in Seattle out of that, actually, later. But anyway, to get to the point of your story, we do a lot. We go back to England, and we're not stupid. We use the same producer, and we've written a load of new songs, but they're getting a bit more rock, leaning towards rock. And we try and record a follow-up album, and for a bunch of different reasons, it didn't work out. So we spent, and, and being us, we were too dumb to quit. We recorded the whole album. We mixed the whole album. And then went, I don't think it's right. And so we, what, the, what basically happened was we'd been exposed to Rick Rubin's work, with, um, particularly a song called Cookie Puss by the Beastie Boys, mm -hmm. by a DJ friend of ours in Toronto called Chris Shepard, who sadly passed away, I believe. And he turned me and Ian onto this thing where you've got these beats, but like basically ACDC riffs, but it's kind of, and then it's like whatever the Beastie Boys thing was at that time. And we were like, that sounds interesting. And then, of course, the Run DMC thing with Rick and Aerosmith. So we made a connection and met him. And basically, to cut a long story short, Rick agreed to remix our album that we'd recorded in England that we weren't happy with. Um, but he said he wanted us to cut one song with him from the ground up. So we go to New York to cut one song. So it's all rented equipment. We just go for a, thinking we're going for like a week. We rent everything, drums, guitars, everything. And then Rick's, we start recording and it's so fundamentally different. We decide to do the whole album again. And we did it in 19 days in New York. Wow. Um, right around Christmas time of 1986 into 1987. And we worked every day and it was Rick and George Draculius. And um, it, I think it was Rick's first album where he actually used a live 
drums. We recorded it at Electric Ladyland, but I don't think that's where the title of the album came from. Um, and we recorded it, and basically, and we had Andy Wallace engineered it, who's you know mm -hmm. now would want your firstborn to mix one of your <laughs> albums. He recorded it and mixed it for us on the same desk. We did it all, and it was like a method thing: twenty-four tracks. What you see is what you get. What you hear is what you get. Two guitar tracks, tambourine. You know, it was very minimalist. And what Rick did, and I've always used the quote to finish. Rick said, I didn't really um, produce the cult in so much as I reduced them. We'd made an album that was overblown and had too many layers and overcompensation for not really working enough on the structure of the songs. And Rick basically took everything down to its very barest fundamental rock bones and kind of said to me and Ian, you like early Aerosmith, you like ACDC, you like early Led Zeppelin. I'm like, yeah. He said, so cool, let's make a record. You know, and that was essentially <laughs> what happened. And um, that's how we did it. We just kind of gutted it out. You know, our gut was like, what we'd done wasn't right. It, subsequently, that came out. It was called the Manor Sessions. And then it subsequently got released as um, Peace, I think. It's like a rare, but the actual Electric Album first version um, was completely finished, recorded in a mix, and it has many of the same songs just the, the the more i guess british indie versions some people mm. like it I, I don't hate it it has some good qualities it's just right. that i think the rick thing was um important in our history to kind of change the trajectory of where the cult was going in in the longer term i think yeah i was i was a, that was a great i remember distinctly when that came out and it was a just a great floor stomping solid meat and potatoes uh rock riff record you know it's just we were aiming for meat and two veg so we did all right <laughs> um, well then you know, and then you I, went on tour you were on tour uh, on that record with billy idol yeah that was a lot of fun that, and that uh because i saw it Oh yeah, you're and, at that yes. Whiplash Smile Tour. Yeah, Whiplash Smile Tour. Yes, I saw in whatever it was, '87 probably or 80, late '86 or something, right? Yeah, it was no, it was '87. It was summer of '87. <laughs> yeah, I saw it in uh, at a shed in Detroit. I think is that where I saw it? Yeah, that would have been where I saw it. Good time. It was a really fun tour. We had a great time. It was, yeah, it was it a was, lot of fun. It was great, and then uh, Matt Sorum was playing drums. No, he wasn't. You were hallucinating. No? It was Les oh. Warner. Matt Sorum joined us for Sonic Temple, the next album. Hmm. Yep, hmm. he wasn't. I was Unless you saw us with Metallica, and then Matt Sorum was in the band, and that was 89. No, I wouldn't have seen that. If he was with, with, with Last Smile, um, then it, was, um, it wasn't well. Matt. My mistake, then. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's not, I, that, that I do know. You did have two guitar players, I remember. You and, and someone one else. One and a half. One and a half, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, no, Jamie, uh, what we did was we our bass player originally, Jamie, um, just switched back to his original instrument, which was always guitar, because he gave up the guitar to be the bass player in the Death Cult, which became the Cult, same band. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we decided that we wanted to add another guy. So, But I didn't. I kind of had still an idea of how I wanted the band to look. So basically we got um, a bass player in called Haggis, 
who played in Zodiac Mind Warp. And his oh, whole thing was just, I don't want to ever move more than 18 inches from the kick drum. And I will never do anything other than bang my head. And he just played eighth notes. And, and so essentially the core front line was still, you know, Jamie, Ian and me. And Haggis just locked into the, the drums and just head banged and did his thing. And, you know. I remember that tour really was locked time. in. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was. A, I remember that distinctly. It was very locked in and sounded amazing. It was, yeah, we had, we was a lot. And then, of course, after that, we went back around on our own and we had um, the, the same summer, towards the end of the summer, we had um, a little up-and-coming band who did quite well called Guns N' Roses uh, <laughs> open for us as our yeah. special guests. Ian found them. He, to, he said, there's this band I found in L.A. called Guns N' Roses and they're playing in London. You've got to go and see them because we were still living in England at that point. So I tried to go down the marquee and I couldn't get in to see this band because Ian said, I think they, sh they should play with us. They're really good. They're like a really good rock band and they're the real deal. And, you know, yes, they were and yes, they are. And mm -hmm. that, that was a good. So that summer was pretty bonkers, I can tell you, you know, um, going on tour with Billy Idol and, you know, and Steve Stevens and the guys. Mm -hmm. And then with all the guns guys, we had, um, you know, that was... Uh, yeah, that was definite piracy on the high seas. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. That's hey, great. I got to jump over to a couple of super chats, Dave. Yeah. Before okay. I miss them, um, from Mike Corsack. Thanks for the super chat. He says, uh, oh, okay. "How did Billy become such a fan of boss pedals?" Um, I inherited them. I didn't actually have any pedals when when when. The death cult started which i say the death cult just because these people out there go well you were called the death cult for nine months before it's the same band we were called the death cult and we stopped calling ourselves we took the death off the name became the cult but it, essentially when jamie joined the band i told you i just said jamie he gave up the guitar and he gave me his pedals he said i don't think i'll be needing these anymore because in the band i was in before theater of hate i don't think i used pedals I used Reverb, I had a Fender Twin and a Gretsch, and I might have used an MXR Overdrive that was horrible. And so Jamie gave me a couple of pedals, and I just started using them. They were mostly Boss pedals, and I just kind of grew to love their dependability and reliability and the way they perform like a Japanese automobile. <laughs> you know, they never let you down, and you can get, you can get what you need from them. Um, anywhere in the world you know there was a sort of a pragmatic element but they also sounded great you know um they, i still love the dm2 i still use boss pedals for the most part um, yeah you, you know i there's so many boutique pedals now i don't think people understand if you kind of like if you've been around like i have there were no boutique amps there were no boutique pedals there weren't right. guys in sheds making this amazing stuff no it was just what manufacturers gave you and yeah, out you, of those some of it was crap and some of yeah. it was good yeah you had you had boss pedals or you had ibanez pedals and mxr pedals and that's it that was it and then there Period. was just the ancient pedals that the the, the rock yeah, gods used that Fox were in, you know in secondhand and shops and buried in people's cupboards you know and yeah there right. was none of that you just you just kind of had to do and, and then the 80s that just started, that's when we started learning about amp modification and, 
you know, you can make them sound better than what Reginald did in Milton Keynes. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. uh, it was quite a sharp learning curve with, with, with the whole thing in the 80s, you know, coming to the States with Seymour, um, Seymour Duncan with the pedals and uh, with the pickups. And, you know, it was a thing. Yeah, right. That's cool. Uh, and also, oh, oh, yeah. well, hold on. And going on that tour, remember, so I go, I show up on that electric tour. So we're going out. When we play in England in great, we sell out like 30 shows and everything's fine and dandy and Rock's having a big comeback and got huge. And, you know, we were right on the, the, the forefront of that return to kind of cool rock, um, finally. And all that was great, except I go out there and I'm trying to play a white folk and we've got Steve Stevens shredding. The next tour, I go, next tour I go on is Slash. Right. Like, so I was like, you know, I'm having a little trouble with this Falcon. It's like trying <laughs> to drive an SUV around a racetrack with race cars. You know, it's just no matter what you do, an SUV is still an SUV. You know what I mean? And it has a high center of gravity. So I had to start kind of leaning back onto the Les Pauls a little bit. And the music on electric was all recorded with Les Pauls. There's not any... People like to think there's a Gretsch on there, and I hate to disabuse them. There isn't. It was done with two rented Les Pauls Mm. and a bunch of rented Marshalls, of which we selected the best two out of ten rentals and a cabinet, and that is... The whole of the electric album is basically those instruments. From my perspective, that was it. Mm. There was no... Great. Yeah. Great info, by the way. Um, Mike Corsick also has another one. Dave, this is for you. Have you heard of a, or have an opinion of the Bill M mod for a Blues Junior? I don't even know what it is. Okay. Yeah. I've not heard Sorry. of it. Yep. Sorry. We couldn't answer it. Um, we've got another one uh, from Night Mission. Billy, your guitar playing in She Sells Sanctuary is still to this day the most incredible, unique, badass playing. I can't argue with that. (laughs) (laughs) Fully support that sentiment. Thank you very much. That's great. Um, L. Scott Music. The Cult is the only big band I've seen live twice. Once in Santa Barbara. Once at Santa Barbara Bowl and once in Orange County when a new guy named Lenny Kravitz opened for them. That one got me laid. (laughs) (laughs) And me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, awesome! And a new guy, Lenny Kravitz. He's yeah, he was an up and up. Well, actually, yeah, we had the same management, and it was the tour after Sonic Temple. It was a tour of ours on an album called Ceremony, mm-hmm. which was actually quite an extensive, um, large scale tour due to the cool, cumulative success of our previous album. Ceremony didn't do as well as Sonic Temple. That was our first little the bit in the, the, the story where everything's going on the up and then suddenly, ah, mm. I, you know, who knows? It happens to everybody usually. Um, but the tour was fantastic. And then Lenny, we had the same management. So Lenny was at that point huge in Europe and we would have had to open for him over there. But in America, he hadn't cracked it yet, really. So it was a nice little package. It worked great. Great tour. I had tons of fun on that tour. What year was that? It was late 1991, hmm. I believe. Music I think, was I think or maybe 91 into 92. 
Yeah, music was changing. Music started to change. It was, yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yep. Things um, were on the change. We were still playing arenas and had long air and, you know, under, and down in the, you know, in the little clubs in LA, things were, things were changing. Bands were appearing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had Nirvana. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember all that grunge thing. Cause a lot, if you've seen that, like um, Pearl Jam movie, you know, they do a thing. They were, we were friends with them when they were mother love bone and, I remember going to see him in Toronto with Ian and Ian got really friendly with their singer that died, Andrew Wood. And, you know, if you see that Pearl Jam movie, you know, there's a whole thing of them trying to get into the cult gig in Seattle. And, you know, obviously, you know, you guys know I'm good, good friends with Jerry and he, he used to um, play with him a fair bit. And he told me how kind of Jerry was more the rock guy in Lane was turning Jerry on to like the cult and bands that were more from the alternative. And that was kind of the Alice in Chains kind of fusion was, was that Lane brought in, he was into that kind of more indie stuff from England that mm -hmm. was still, and that was one of the things I thought that made the cult probably, if I could talk about my band in the third person, out of all the British bands that came over that weren't out and out rock, a la Def Leppard, who were a rock pop, metal band mm -hmm. we were the most rock and roll of all the indie bands of the bunny men the furs i don't i don't mean that in a judgmental way because i love all of those bands i'm just saying we were the most hard rock ian yeah. had that voice i'd mm -hmm. grown up trying to play rock guitar before punk and it was just natural for us for our songwriting to evolve down that road particularly as we started getting popular in north america you know, it sure. wasn't, it, it was harder for us to keep the angular, punky, you know, our music just evolved and went down that road. It wasn't difficult for us. It was actually natural. People thought it was like some kind of fake thing. I mean, Ian lived in North America for six years when he was a teenager. So he grew up in on the border between America and Canada in Hamilton, Ontario. Mm -hmm. So he had an American, you know, a North American high school upbringing. So we had exposure to FM radio, which I never had. You know, it didn't exist in the UK. You know, there wasn't that type of radio in England. So, you know, it, it, that type of music was in our DNA, but also a, a huge part of it for me was punk rock, which just happened when I left high school. So I was literally right there circumstantially in Manchester when the punk thing happened. So those two things together, you know... Um, is kind of what it went into the cult's DNA, and 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 it's still there to this day. You never lose that. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful fusion of all mm -hmm. all those influences, which which I think is great because and you can hear it. You can you can hear it. We yeah. we yeah we try. It's difficult. You know there aren't that many. I mean I mean I mean I I could be wrong, but they're not. You know, a lot of the great bands that came out of the UK um, in, in the 80s, none of them were quite as bluesy. I mean, there was there was not a lot of blues in their makeup, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Their music was amazing, but it wasn't blues. We had more of the blues rock and roll thing going on, and we just mm -hmm. ran with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so we had Bob Rock on in the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah a while back um how did you end up meeting bob rock and how did that come about for the sonic temple album um well 
that was a that going back to the probably the Whiplash Smile tour or possibly us with Guns and Roses. Um, I um, when in Vancouver in the eighties, I used to find myself somehow magnetically drawn to a strip club pub, and <laughs> I ran into this guy who became my drinking buddy called Laird Doyle, who turned out to be Bob Rock's tech. Um, and Bob Rock was a guy I'd never heard of. Um, but he said, oh, my boss, Bob, he's playing in this band. They're playing the big thing you're playing. They're playing it tonight. You're playing it tomorrow. He wants to meet you. And so, you know, having had a few beers, I went down in some ridiculous outfit. And so, and I, I've seen some photos of it. And, and I met Bob and his band. It was a band called Rock and Hide, which was um, essentially... I'd never heard of them. It's like a Canadian band. And really what it was, was they were the Paolas, which was a Canadian punk band. Mm -hmm. And they split up, reformed and changed their name to the primary members, Bob and, and Paul Hyde. Anyway, so that was it. And I met him and um, I, we just chatted and got along great. And he was saying how he'd started getting into engineering and was working with Bruce Fairburn at a studio called Little Mountain. Next thing I hear, I go back to, so that's great. Great night, love Bob, nice guy, had fun, whatever. A few months later, um, I hear that Kingdom Come album on the radio, which, you know, you've got to put it into his, you have to put Kingdom Come, and Dave's laughing because he probably knows all of the band guys. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of laughing. I'm sort of remembering what Bob said right. about the Kingdom Come thing. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, sure, story, I'm yeah. sure everybody, anyway, whatever, I'm not going to all, all that mattered was I liked the sounds. It sounded huge. Record. Yeah, The sound was huge, and huge yes. was mm -hmm. what I wanted for the cult. Because electric was great, but I wanted something a bit more almost grandiose. I thought electric was brilliant, like, like, like an early ACDC album. It was honest and real, but a bit... You know, I struggled because, to be honest, I went into that session as a guy who played a white falcon with a few effects pedals through a Roland JCM, JC120 chorus and a Marshall, and I had this whole love sanctuary sound. And I came out of it, and Rick was like, there's a Les Paul, there's a Marshall, off you go. And mm -hmm. I, had to, I had to rewrite all the stuff on the spot. It was, it was traumatic, like really to go, to drop everything I'd built up. But I thought it was for the greater good of the band. I got caught up in the the vibe of making that electric album, which in retrospect was the correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, but, but with Bob, I just felt, you know, I chatted with Bob and I think he might've said to me, like, if I was doing a record with you, I'd want to make, take the essence of the electric album, but bring back some of the stuff from the love album that might got, have got a bit left behind. That's why, and that's how we ended up with, you know, correct. I mean, I suggested using Bob. He had no track record other than the Kingdom Come record and, mm -hmm. and engineering on. I don't I, I don't know what Bruce Fairburn had done, but I think I, it could have been Brian Adams, Bon Jovi, I don't know, but it was that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, and in, in full credit to Ian Asprey, he went, if you feel strongly enough about it, we should go for it. So, you know, that was that open-mindedness rather than, no, 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 we, we have to use Rick Rubin again or we have to use a big rock. You know, we took a chance on Bob, you know, because it was a gamble. You know, he, he had had Kingdom Come, but that was it. You know, and then 
you know, we did, we had a great time making the album in 1988, I believe, up in Vancouver. And, um, and, um, you know, it was, it was a good record for us, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Of, of its time, you know, it was big, big and it's still, you know, we threw the kitchen sink at that one, two kitchen sinks, <laughs> you know, it was, Bob, Bob, had, Bob had all manner of technology going and stuff. It was great. Do you remember what um, technology there was at the time? <laughs> oh, yeah. There was definitely, yeah, there was all sorts going on. It was marvelous. You remember the, the good guitars? Old days. Days. Yeah, the good old days before digital. Um, yeah. Do you remember the amps and guitars that you used on that album to record? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it was the same sort of the same essential go-to package that I always would do. I, I used, um, I used my uh, Marshalls that have been modified at these JCMA. This was a great one. So we get money. We, the cult finally makes some money after the love album. We're going to go on tour and do electric and Dave's going to come and see us in Detroit and hallucinate that he sees Matt Sorum on stage yeah, well, okay, <laughs> two years before he joined the band, but he's hallucinating Matt Sorum. So, we buy, we just go to Marshall and we just buy all new amps, everything. We buy a whole back line and we flight case it all. And that was it. There was no, we just like, well, I'm, all right, we need two of those heads, two of those, four of those cabs. It was like all those horrible Marshalls with the big logo and the black. Ugh. And that's what, we, you know, I didn't know any better. You know, I mean, it was, you know, I didn't know. I, we were a club band. Right. And then we became a theatre band, and then we became kind of an arena shed band fairly quickly. And I just tried to have to adapt, and we made it up as best we could going mm -hmm. along. You know, it, 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 it was just kind of adapt and survive and observe other bands and people who you respected and learn from them, you know, how, how, they, do, how they did it, you know, the, how they did their things, you know. Yep. I'm going to jump over to um, a couple more super chats that we have here. Right. Uh, Patrick Miller, thank you for the super chat. For all of you, what are your greatest guitar tones you've ever heard in person? Doesn't have to be a live show. And what was the gear used? Mine is Steve Stevens, Gilmore, and Dimebag. What's yours, Billy? Greatest wow. tones you've heard live? Wow, that's a good one. Uh, hmm. It's an interesting one, that tone. Um, I think that's really where it's at. You know, at the end of the day, um, it, it, it's, I w that's a very, oof. I did, I, <laughs> off the top of my head, I did a gig where I was lucky enough to play with Sammy Hagar and Ronnie Montrose before Ronnie Montrose died. And I, got, I was lucky enough to play a couple of early Montrose tunes with those two guys on stage. And... Uh, that was really brilliant, and um, that was a pretty good tone. And I, I had a good chat with him. Ronnie Montrose got a pretty good sound. I've done a lot of gigs with Steve Stevens, and I would say that, in all honesty, I would say Steve and Jerry Cantrell get great tones. Steve, yeah. Steve, and Jerry Cantrell, and Dave's nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they you know, always I, got good tones, <laughs> but, but they, they always get good tones, right. and they get better tones now. <laughs> but uh, those guys, I, I I used to like what Mick Ralphs did with Bad Company. I know he wasn't the technically greatest guitar hero, 
But Mick Ralph's in Bad Company and Mott the Hoople. I really love, I saw Mott the Hoople when they reformed in 2010. They did five nights in London. And I went specially to see that. And, and um, he's still got this ginormously fat, you know, he probably had three too many Jack and Cokes, but he, his tone was just this enormously thick rock. I mean, there's loads of people. I'm, I'm completely yeah. missing a billion guys. It's just today, that's what sprung into my head. Um, you know, Mick Ronson is obviously somebody who um, I, I would say always got pretty interesting guitar sounds that were expressive. I think that's the key to me is I like music and to the tonality conveys an emotion. And that's what's always appealed to me about music. I, I can admire somebody's technical ability, but when I was 14 years of age, sitting at home in my bedroom practicing guitar scales was the last thing I had on my mind. You know what I mean? So I was never going to be the fastest gunslinger in town. Um, right. Uh, so, you know, there was too many girls to chase. Um, so I did what I needed to do to get by on the guitar um, and worked on, you know, what haircut and all that stuff. But um, it's a great question because to me, it's great that the, the guy asked that about tone because to me, that's really it. I think rock and roll music um, is music and I differentiate like rock and metal. To me, metal is brilliant, but it's from the waist up. It's, it's music that affects you in a cerebral kind of, and rock and roll really gets you from the waist down. Or if it's good, it should. Right. You know, and the tonality <laughs> connects me emotionally with it. And that's what I like. I mean, Joe Bonamassa, I was chatting to a mate the other day, I heard something that Joe Bonamassa did, and fantastic guitar tone. Right. You know? Yeah, he's got great tone too. We're lucky. There's guys making great amps now. <laughs> exactly. You can go and buy them. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, that that reminds me of our sponsor. I should mention Sweetwater. <laughs> Guys, check uh -huh. out Sweetwater. You can check out. Uh, uh, go buy something from them. Yeah, yeah, and a multitude of products, all kinds of a good amp, uh, a Gretsch White Falcon. You can get. Uh, you know, so check out. We have a link down below the video you guys are watching. So if you click on that, uh, cool, it gives us yeah. a little. A little kickback to the show. So um, let me get to uh, another super chat. More guitar. Wait, let, let, let me answer that question too, though. Oh, sure. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, go. So, yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, uh, it, it's it's funny. So I, so I was, I grew up mostly, you know, in childhood would be, you know, mostly in the 80s. So, um, so for me, it's, it, you know, of course, uh, Eddie Van Halen, seeing him live in 1984 uh amazing guitar tone yeah yeah acdc obviously always a great loud guitar tone <laughs> loud a really loud um you know always been good but i mean i could go down the list it's not just three or or something you know i can go down the list i mean i remember seeing warren d martini mm. uh play you know with his band rat in the 80s with the, these old marshals and they were amazing sounded amazing um yeah jerry's tone like you said uh steve stevens also uh even uh ty Tabor over the years and king's x uh oh, yeah. amazing amazing sounds uh, interesting sounds different um especially like the gretchen record of ty 
King's X, which is amazing guitar tone, I think. Uh, but and unique. I like unique. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about that time is that was just before you could buy this stuff, right? This is before you could buy the amps with gain and this and that. So people were coming up with ways to boost right. them and preempt them and do things to them that were kind of unique. I mean, I guess that started way back with like Richie Blackmore using a tape machine into his Marshall major, uh, you know, um, I remember George Lynch telling me a story where it was, he was in the studio recording one of their records and he had a, a little tiny Porta studio, right? So he would plug into it and take the out and feed it into the front of his Marshall and they would hide the Porter studio under the console because they didn't want anyone seeing it because it was preamping the front of the amp, boosting it or pushing it. But all that led to unique tones, which I, I, I find interesting. And I think in some ways that's a little lacking today because you don't have to do that. Yeah. So at that point, does everything become a little more homogenous? I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's interesting thought. Yeah, you had you certainly had to work a lot harder in the eighties yeah. to to find that. I mean, I remember. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different tricks and 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 different and and also you know all amps you have to find a good one. They weren't all the same. You know, you couldn't. Yeah. You know, they were they were good marshals. I you know I, I mean, I remember going in to see. Uh, I popped in to see Van Halen because I've become quite friendly with Sammy and I went in to see them rehearsing somewhere and that, you know, he, had, he literally had a wall of martial heads that had all been modified, you know. That was the, I think the big trick in the 80s was to get amps modified by, mm -hmm. you know, Jedis in their back sheds. <laughs> and um, I, I still have one. It was done by a guy called Harry Colby in New York. Yeah, um, there was a marshal, but he whatever he did with the you know he did something with the power section, so so that because what I felt had happened with marshals was in order to try and get more overdrive, they just cheapened out on the actual quality of the components, and you were starting getting this like sizzly front end, what I call the guitar center tone, which is all <laughs> sizzle. It's just like sizzling bacon. Yes. In reality, you think it sounds good when you're playing it, but you actually turn it up and it just diminishes. And so he kind yeah. of worked on the power section of the amp so that it really gave some actual meat to the sound. But he also welded a little silicon box with his little secret ingredient. Secrets in it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you probably know about yeah, this. Yeah, I, I know. I, well, I've worked on your amp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've seen. So he made this little... So, that you know, they all had their, their tricks. And then eventually from that, I guess, you know, I remember Soldano mm -hmm. was, was a thing for a minute. And, and various guy, the guy up in Vancouver, who started making amps and working with ACDC. Wizard, yeah. Wizard and, yep. you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, um, yeah maybe there's a homogenization, you know. It, it, it's, um, it, I mean, there's also that, in addition to that thought, in terms of, you know, when I when I started playing and when I saw the Sex Pistols, for example, just to give it some perspective, when I saw the Sex Pistols play, Jim Morrison had only been dead five years. Mm -hmm. Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix has only been dead maybe six, something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like time, 
the amount of musical change. So we've had a long period now for kind of music to hybridize and, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, we've got 40, 50 years of like rock history. You know, when I started, we only had, you know, and then there was guys before me who, you know, they grew up listening to the shadows and, you know, they yeah. listened to that kind of music and then the Beatles and, you know, I list, I I learn off the guys who learn from them. So I listen to the rock guys, you know, late sixties, the British blues sure. rock, and that then again influenced you know rock music as it as it became in the seventies. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, Harry Colby yeah. and uh, mod, modifying your amp. Um, so Miko Thompson, uh, make sure I got his name right he sent me on facebook he sent me a picture of a of an amp that he owns that used to be owned by you i could be it could be i've had a lot of amps i can't i can't confirm or deny it in this situation but i will say i had a lot of amps over the yeah years. And he, he said it was confirmed by uh somebody at that harry colby had modded it it, it could be it, it could be yeah. true i had a lot of amps i had these original ones that i bought and of which i've only got one now i sold a couple like a year or so ago um but i did have another bunch of amps and you know but i don't hold on to gear for a long time really it kind of passes through and i'm That's not good. really i try not to be a hoarder i like that no I, you, and are you constantly getting new gear have you tried new gear or you just hold on to like one or a few I, you things know, that... on the contrary you know if it ain't broke don't fix it it's like boss pedals mm -hmm. although although i will say i have a weakness for overdrives i, I have like <laughs> like i will you know i cannot i have to know do i still possess to me the best overdrive pedal ever made you know, uh, that's my one thing is the sweetest harmo harmonic overdrive. You and tons of guitar players. <laughs> All guitar players. That's the one pedal that. I want know, the one boost pedal that does something extra special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want that. That's what, that's what we all want. Yeah. You know? Is there the a. Better the pedal so that makes it sound better. -er. Right. <laughs> the one you keep always on, it makes you better. Exactly. Yeah. It just makes you better. -er. <laughs> and, and any particular ones that you like that you that you can um, um well i i i mean i'm obviously a fan of i use um my main one is the 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 clon reissue mm -hmm. the, the the t was it t the clon reissue t oh the red one yeah the red one yeah kot or whatever I, I've not. Yeah. I've tried others. I did. I have prior to getting those, of which I just I I'm, I do it like a boxing match. I'll put them head to head, and if it can beat that, it's like a knockout competition. But nothing yet to me has beaten that pedal for my. I and of course I found that because Bob Rock had an original Clon Centaur now worth, you know, four million dollars, <laughs> and because Bob has all the gear. Because that's what I've learned. You go in a studio with a producer like Bob or, um, you know, guys who, who can play a little bit, they have a habit of collecting all the gear that sounds good. Yeah. And, but, you know, like Bob said, if an amp doesn't do a job that's, that's good, it, it's just taking up space. It's yeah. a doorstop. You know? Bob, so, Bob, Bob said, he goes, I don't collect gear. I collect sounds. Yeah. 
and and, yes, and, and he goes, if if it's this the combination to get this sound, that's what I'm buying. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've known Bob, you know, all since '88, so uh, or '87, in fact. So, mm -hmm. yeah, he's got some great stuff, and you know, I've, so I've had the opportunity. I mean, I have my live thing, and I have my like go to setup, um, and um, I, I do that. And then, you know, when we go into make records, I, I have more fun and experiment and try and get different sort of inspirations from different guitars and amps and sounds and stuff, you know? Sure. Let me jump over to, uh, some more super chats. We got a bunch of them, uh, more guitars. Thank you for the super chat killer show again. Thank you, Dave. I use your wildwood small box 50 live and I just got a fry at power station along with your Mike no mo to go to front of house. Do I go from small box 50 to the Mike no mo? which goes to front of house, then to the power station. You can do that. That works fine. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, let me jump ahead. I don't know if you really need the power station with the amp, but I okay. Was say, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, we were, you, there was a Facebook post that I had commented also. Someone was like, oh, I'm using a power station with my BE. I was like, you really don't need it. But that's that's my feeling uh daniel zimmerman thanks for the super chat i didn't see a question so if i missed it let me know oh uh okay he said uh fan of your playing what kind of stuff are you working on now Daniel, me? For, for yeah. you billy yeah for me oh, for me uh, for you um nick well there's a new cult album in the works we've been we've been digging away um at that over the last year and a half um we have um, we're working with a great young english producer called tom dalgetty and obviously with um um the circumstances of the last year or so it's been a little challenging but we're making some progress and you know the the the, the philosophy in the cult camp really is about quality not quantity you know, we don't just need to keep putting out records for the sake of it. Um, so we want to really make sure that without being ridiculous, we want to, within a certain realistic time frame, make sure that the records that we put out are as good as they can be. So sometimes that takes a bit longer, you know, and that's kind of where we're at. But we've, we're, we're well, well into the process of a new cult album. Um and also, I've done another, um, I have a little side project, such a terrible expression. But um, it, last year, I was in England for a lot of the year, and I um, recorded an album with my old buddy, Mike Peters, the singer from The Alarm. And that was just something I did for fun. We, you know, with, with, with me and Mike, we just seemed to write very quickly, and we wanted to do a very simple, no-frills rock record that, that didn't have... Um, it was just spontaneous, light on its feet, and um, and that's what we've done. So we have this color sound. This the band's called Color Sound, and um, we have a we did one album in 1988 when neither of us, he wasn't in the alarm and I wasn't in the call, and then 20 years later we've done another album, um, and so that's going to come out. Um, that was a, that was just a lot of fun. Um, so I've been a bit, quite a bit productive, you know, um, g given the last year or so uh, of yeah. not doing any any shows or anything. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, 
I just did a bit of guitar on um, Jonesy's old band, The Professionals, that Jonesy doesn't play in anymore. I'm, I'm good buddies with um, Paul Cook, the drummer, and uh, he just asked me to do a bit of guitar on a few tunes. So I did that this week uh, in, uh, in L.A. at my mate's studio in Silver Lake. Um, and that was uh, that's that uh, was pretty cool. Cool. Awesome. Use one of my Friedman amps. Great. To good effect. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, the elusive. Thanks for the super chat, guys. Great talk, Billy. How do you see the first five albums, Dream Time to Ceremony? I love them all, yet they're so different from each other. I couldn't rank them. <laughs> By the way, saw you guys in 01 and you killed. Rest in peace, Roseland Ball. Uh, Roseland, yeah, yeah. Well, Roseland, we, we loved playing Roseland. We love, we always like playing. There's certain venues that have like a magic to them, and it doesn't mm -hmm. particularly matter. The, the certain venues have different factors. Roseland was good. Any kind of ballroom, like the Palladium in LA, even though it's challenging sound wise, yeah. when you're when the stage and the audience are connected and it's sprung, there's like a there's like a connection there because all those old ballrooms, you know, the band yeah. used to play and people would come down and ballroom dance. The floors sprung. Mm -hmm. So the audience and the stage are at one. So it's different than, say, doing a theatre where a theatre is constructed that the people on stage, the sound projects out. And there's usually what's called a proscenium, which is the arch above the stage. You don't have that in a ballroom. So they're very, very different to compare, you know, Hammersmith Odeon in London, which is a which is a theatre, to a Roseland Ballroom. You know, in London we had the Hammersmith Palais, which was identical to Roseland Ballroom. Same thing, wooden floor. Um, but to answer your question um, about albums, yeah, we 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 always just kind of try to document where we're at. I mean, me and Ian are no different than anybody else. We're fans of music. We're two guys. One of the things about the call, I think that maybe worth mentioning is it's always been a collaborative creative effort between me and Ian. And as you can imagine, like any kind of situation, there's pushing and pulling and Ian wants to go a certain direction. I might resist or I might want to go a certain direction. And that tension creatively, it's not like Ian writes Ian songs and Billy writes Billy songs and we record them as the call. There mm. are no Ian songs or Billy songs. They're Ian and Billy songs together. And over the time, there's a bit of, um, you know, a, um, creative. It's not always tension. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. There's, that's what makes it good. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like that blend. And sometimes Ian, Ian will have more. We sort of respect each other to the extent that, you know, I think there's a trust there, you know. And, and I think that after this many years together and a few years apart, but that we um i think we trust each other and respect each other enough so you know there's all and i think it's healthy to have creative tension you know there's nothing worse than walking into a room and nobody's got any ideas you know i'd rather have an argument about something creative than to have nothing you know um you know just the sound of crickets right what we're going to do now um <laughs> right or or so, they just agree or they just agree to everything Right. Yeah, you know, so we, you know, we see things very differently. You know, you know, um, in in a lot of ways, we're very alike. 
our birthdays are one year and two days apart. So we're both Torians. Our birthdays are both coming up very soon. Um, we're very alike in a lot of ways and very different in a lot of ways. But, you know, um, so, so that as a background, we've started just followed our course. You know, the first album, Dreamtime, was done. To be honest, somebody said, our manager at the time said, the promoters in Europe won't book you for shows unless you make an album because we'd already done an EP and a single. Mm. They went, they want you to have an album to promote or else you can't really tour Europe properly. So we kind of, that was that album. And then, and then the Love album was we were beginning to find our feet. And there was a slight period of panic prior to She Sell Sanctuary where a lot of the other bands who were our peers were having hits and we weren't. We hadn't had a hit. And there was beginning to be this undercurrent. I remember of people were suggesting we do a cover version. Like people were like beginning to quietly go, um, have you guys thought about, you know, um, anyway. So Sanctuary luckily changed all that. And that was kind of a watershed moment. And then, as I said earlier in, the, in, in this conversation, we were just then allowed, because we'd signed to Beggar's Banquet and they like still are, a big indie, uh, independent label. Um, even though in America our albums appeared on Warner, Sire Warner, we signed with Seymour Stein, um, I might point out. But um, we, we were always essentially, our contract was with Beggar's Banquet in England. So we were given carte blanche to do what we wanted. Beggar's Banquet have always been the kind of label where it's artist driven and music driven, you know? And so, we, between that, we, it's just us exploring, you know, the difference. Uh, um, Ceremony was a bit of a, a bit of a hard one because we we never we wanted to do the album with Bob as a producer because we got such a good rapport with him with Sonic Temple, and he actually started working on the album, and we did one track with us with his pre-production, but unfortunately, he was embroiled in a little album called the Black Album. Mm. for Metallica and um, that took a long time and he just had to pull out of the cult record he said I can't do both you know um, you know I mean the, the, at that time I mean we would look at maybe three months to make an album ish the Metallica album I think took 13 maybe I don't yeah. know something like that and mm. so you know and the results were um, you know speak for themselves you know it's not again it's not it's about the quality. It doesn't matter how long it takes to make it, as long as it's good. Mm. But but it, so for ceremony, me and Ian were at a period where I think we were really quite diametrically opposed, and that album suffered because we ended up getting a producer who's actually still a friend of mine now, but he was caught in the middle. He was not our first choice, and he was caught in the middle, and Ian was in one extreme of what direction you wanted to take the call. And I, at that time, was like, we've just had our biggest selling album. We've just done the biggest, why would we want to change our musical style now? You know what I mean? And it, that, that was one of the times, unfortunately, where I don't think it, but, but having said that, Ceremony, I, I think has some of the best guitar sounds I've ever recorded on it. As a, I don't think the songs are as, as fully realized and as, as good as perhaps they could have been. But I think that um, tone, tone wise, 
I think some of the guitar sounds are incredible. But I've been on tour for nearly two years, <coughs> right before it. So um, I was at the full uh, the full limit of my shred osity <laughs> at that point. You were fully warmed up. I was, yeah, um, I was prepared for that one. We uh, got a few more that I can't find in the actual chat to post on the video, but I'm just going to go through them. Um, uh, from Ronnie Walker, he says, Billy, what band would you love to play with besides the cult? And what guitarist would you want to replace? What guitarist would you want to replace you if you left the band? Oh, man, that's a, t that's, that's a tough one. Um, that's that's some that's a bit of a morbid thought. Um, yeah. Who, who's going to take your job? Who's going to jump in my warm slippers um, when I? <laughs> I um I always said that I would love to have played for Iggy Pop, you know, for nothing. You know, you might have heard that and ring me up now, but I always, you know, we did some gigs with Iggy in '86. Just cause, we didn't even really need to; we just wanted to. He toured Europe and we opened up for him because we, we could. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to be, that's one band. Um, there's loads of bands, Mock the Hoople. Thin Lizzy, I'd, you know, I used to love Thin Lizzy when I was a kid. There's so many bands that I would love to have played in um, uh, their music. And, and the thing about having these type of things, like, you know, if you ask me that question tomorrow, I'd come up with a bunch of different answers that may be even cooler. I don't. Oh. Mm -hmm. but like right now at this moment in time that's what flew into my head like Iggy you know I think that's Iggy cool. Pop but Iggy Pop stuff is all around good fun right right um, as in um, terms of a replacement for me mm -hmm. um, that's a very don't give Ian Asprey any ideas um, I'm trying to think um <laughs> uh, there was a kid, there would, I'll tell you who it is. There was a guy I used to play football with in Los Angeles who was Brazilian, and his name was Rafa. <laughs> and he was a really good guitar player. Uh, Rafa I, I, would, I, would have given, I would have suggested Rafa. If I was retiring, I would have got Rafa in to play my bits. Uh, I know him so well. <laughs> do you know, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, I know him. I, I do work for him, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I, yeah. I, off the top of my head, you know, he was he was I, he was talking about soccer, uh, uh, soccer at um, at um, the house in the hills. Uh, um, the what, where, did, where, where did you, Robbie? Yeah, Robbie. Yeah, Robbie Williams. Robbie W's house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Up on the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Ra <laughs> I, I thought Rafa was a really good guitar player. I mean, there's a million. Oh, guys, he's a great you know? guitar player. Yeah. Interesting choice, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I didn't, well, I, you know, I'm not trying to avoid saying anything, you know. Um, I'm trying to think who, who, who would do, do a good job. Who's, I, I don't know, Rafa, Rafa would be one. There you That's go. Cool. That's cool. Uh, Craig Sheehan gave us a super chat, but I didn't see a question. So thanks, Craig, for the super chat. Uh, and then Roger Dat said, the crew tonight wants to know, what is your secret? You'll Dave? find out tomorrow. <laughs> okay. um exactly you'll find out tomorrow i don't even know what it is i honest to god have no idea what what it is um okay blake burris hey guys love the episode with bo hill uh billy did you ever play any shows with cardiacs or have any action interactions with tim smith tim smith that's a familiar name can you can you give me a little more background 
on him because I'm getting to that age where it's like a bit of a fog. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I depending I don't, on what era of your life it came from, probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I'm not sure um, if uh, Blake, if you can tell us more, uh, we'll we'll find out. Um, Eric Johnson, um, and not the shredder Eric Johnson, or maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. Um, thanks to Billy for an amazing show at the Paramount in Seattle in 2019. It was a special night I'll never forget, and his live tone was on point. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you. I do try. I do try. It's the least I can do, you know. I had a bit one of the guitars sound good. And you do. You do a very good job. Uh, S. Hodges, thanks for the super chat. I don't know if you gave us a question, though, because I don't see it. Um, Michael Torin, what's up? Uh, how are you, buddy? Uh, I wouldn't oh. be me if I didn't ask Bill. Uh, Billy, can you talk about the rack gear you used in the 80s and 90s? Okay, I had a huge rack in the 80s, and um, I uh, no, I, I had um, <laughs> I had a Bradshaw rig which everybody had, and I ended up it's actually a true story. It's gonna sound like one of those awful, like, um netflix type stories i i put a lot of money into a harley davidson that it spent it spent it took so long to get this motorbike customized and made that by the time i got it delivered i hated it i hated the builder so i immediately went to sell it i had one photo session with it in some stupid biker magazine with me and my long blonde hair and like a waistcoat on and did this photo shoot with this Harley, which was from a terrible era. Uh, it was like the AMF era when Harleys had the drive. Anyway, what I don't want to get in a motorbike talk, but it, it wasn't a good era for Harleys. But this bike looked amazing. Anyway, I flogged it to this French guy, and um, he gave me the money in cash, and I literally got in my car and drove over to the valley and gave it to Bradshaw and went, build me a rack. Um, and, and I ended up using stuff... Bob, Bob helped me with it because Bob had worked with John Sykes, um, Psycho, and he, we, me and Sykes actually traded guitars, funnily enough. We, we did a swapsie. We sent some people up to Blackpool. We traded Les Pauls, which, of course, subsequently that's gone in the midst of time. Now, that guitar went from me to Steve Jones and the Pistols and is now owned by Mike Dimkich, who used to play in the Colt. Um, um, and Mike's got that guitar. So that was originally John Sykes's. Anyway, Psycho used these Korg um, rack-mounted delays that sounded very warm and analog. And um, I remember that was an element in it all. And all that MIDI stuff was great for, for Bradshaw. It, was, it sounded pretty good. When I listened back to, to, to the, the recordings, it was certainly on the ceremony. I think it was on... Sonic Temple. I think I had it on Sonic Temple and Ceremony. Those were the two huge arena tours we did. So everything was in flight cases, you know, and everything was on a truck. And we had like, our flight cases had flight cases. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like, you know, we had roadies who had roadies. You know, it was, it was great. You know, everybody had, it was just, it was excess all areas. It was great. And awesome. um, it was great. It weren't really good. And then I didn't, <laughs> so... So it was MIDI controls, right? So we go down in 1991 and 92, we go down to do two big gigs down in Uruguay and Argentina. 
and they're quote unquote festivals, but really it was us supported by Steppenwolf. And the other one was, this is even weirder, Paul Simon supported by an, a Manchester um, Happy Monday type band called the Inspiral Carpets, like a Manchester band. And that was the festival and they, we swapped two venues. And um, the interesting thing about that was Noel Gallagher from Oasis was the guitar tech for the Inspiral Carpets at oh. those shows. <laughs> Little known fact, true story. But what happened was we go on to play the gig in Uruguay, which was at the first ever stadium. It was an open air soccer stadium where the first ever World Cup, I think, was held in the 50s. And my Bradshaw rig freezes because the power's dirty. So basically, if, if you have a, you, you know, I didn't have a knowledge to take a variac down there or whatever. So basically, I did the whole show frozen in one setting which was luckily a usable setting but um you know there there can be issues with those rigs but that's what i had and all the pedals i still use foot pedals because i like them but they were in little drawers mm-hmm. in a inside your rack your pedals were all like that and then you yeah. had like a little controller and um if you paid enough you'd get a roadie that was good enough to do your pedal changes for you then you could really show off you know so you wouldn't have to run back like i have to do nowadays and am i gonna make it back to get that damn delay off um and try try and make it look like you're heroic um and then there was just a point where the cult kind of weren't as big as we once were and i downsized everything and then we started doing a lot of fly dates where it was we were it was just not practical to take amps so Mm. suddenly i was like well shit this stuff's got to be basically pretty generic for me to be able to, you know, I just, it's just that point in your career where you have to make a decision, you know, do you want to come off back off the tour and have a paycheck or do you want to come back off the tour no better off than when you left other than the experience because you mm-hmm. spent it all in taking your gear. So I tried to find a way um, to, to get a great sound but not use so much technology, you know, and that was the end of the Bradshaw era for me, you know, the rack and just wasn't practical anymore. Makes sense. Um, Vibhas Patil. Thanks for the super chat. Sonic temple has one of the coolest guitar tones I've ever heard. What did you do to get that tone? And also what was it like to work with Bob rock? I know we've talked about working touched on that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Bob was—he was early in Bob's career. I mean, we've done five albums with Bob, so it wasn't like a one-night stand. I mean, we've we've gone back to make very diverse-sounding records with Bob. You know, he, he helped us finish off an album fairly recently that we kind of reached the dead end with. Um, we did sort of something like a fan favorite album in 1994 with him, which was kind of like our post-grunge deconstruct album which was called the cult mm. and um, it had a black hebridean it's not a goat it's a black hebridean sheep with four horns on it and that <laughs> album bob did that album it sounds nothing like sonic temple not even close and in the mm. interim he'd done motley crew metallica and god knows what else but so bob bob he has a great um, ability to to kind of get into your head of what you're trying to pull off with the album um 
and he's um the other great thing about working with bob is you never ever walk in the studio without him having a plan that's one of the greatest things about him over the decades i've known the guy every time you walk into that space something creative is going to get done you know there's no sitting around waiting for inspiration twiddling your thumbs you know, he, he kind of combines the perspiration, the planning, you know, um, with some inspiration, you know. Yeah, that's great. Um, Tom Haviland, thanks for the super chat. Just want to say I love the Phoenix. Simple song taken up to 11 with a wah pedal killer. Well, thank you. I, I was particularly proud of that because when we did the album Love, um, as I'd mentioned, we ended up using um, big country's drummer, Mark Brzezicki, because our drummer we had to let go because he was uh, incapacitated um, and was no longer really, just he, he got into drugs and blah, blah, blah. So we had to use Mark and jamming with Mark, who was more of a technical kind of drummer, he kind of, he was more of the Simon Phillips school of drumming. And he, but he, you know, with a big country, there was a lot of tom-tom work and, we kind of simplified that. And then towards the end of pre-production, there was two riffs that I had. One was the Phoenix and one was a song called Love. It became the song Love. And they weren't going to go on the album. They were just riffs I had. And, and in pre-production, literally before we went into the studio, me and Mark jammed these riffs out. Jamie joined in. And we ended up with these two songs that I believe changed the character of the love album and added i got to mess around with a wawa and do some stuff on both of those songs i thought bring the wawa back <laughs> you know and uh I, I just it just just was a really fun creative time and mark's playing ability um kept going mark just play it a bit simpler but you know do your thing just make it more stupid you know and uh, that'll be good for the cult and that's that's how that song came about. Really, it, it is for basically four chords repeated over and over again. Awesome. Um, we had a super chat from S Hodges, um, but I can't find it, so I don't. I'm not sure uh, what it says. Oh, I think I see it. Do you he see wanted it? to know the concept behind the 24 FETs with a 24 and 0.75 scale, no ho, super strat. Uh, well, it's a, a Gibson scale 24 fret guitar. There's the concept. <laughs> yeah. uh, it works really well. I mean, it's just something we tried. It was Grover's initial idea. Okay. And it panned out cool yeah sometimes sometimes things aren't as thought about as people think <laughs> more often than not yeah more often than not it's like yeah that sounds like a good idea okay let's do that yeah <laughs> right? yeah sometimes it's just more often yeah. than not it's dumb luck yeah throw it against right. the really? wall see if it sticks yeah right. a lot of the yeah. time it's that you know uh, okay uh combination of effects well um it varies. I mean, in an ideal world, I would always use a Roland JC120 um, as part of my wall of amps, and that would be mic'd and panned because they have a very unique sound, and that's a big part of the sound issue, so sanctuary. 
there's two boss delays going one's the analog and one's the digital and they both go again one's a shorter thing and one's longer and they're not set they're set just by gut and they just kind of with the picking there's an interaction and then i believe there's some sort of flange on there but over the last how many, how many years is it 30 years for no 35 years since i did it it it's gone through a few different you know um itinerations but essentially that's it and of course one of the keys to getting it is to pick the part next to the bridge so you get a different kind of attack on it and um you know that that's kind of all those elements together work i mean if you want to and there's also always always been um a, a valve amp of some sort generally a marshall type amp played in combination with with the roland and they're blended together and that's the essence of the sound right there you know the, the flanging is a bit optional i mean we had a lot of stuff going on when we did did that record um but those were the essential pe pedals i don't think there was a phaser there might have been a phase 100 but set Certainly not in that kind of jet stream type thing. Mm. Um, live, I mean, sometimes live, I mean, to be honest, nowadays, um, my sound engineer puts a couple of effects on it out front. Mm. It's a little bit of a little bit of a secret that <laughs> I kind of keep the tone on stage purer and I let him add a couple of the effects out front which he prefers because he can control them and make them more accurate to the room than me trying to hacking away on stage where it might sound good where I am, but I'm not sure it's translating out front. So of late, with uh, Mr. Maguire, our out front guy from Detroit, who I'm sure oh, Dave yeah. probably knows. Um, What's he, his whole uh, name? Uh, uh, Steve Maguire. Do you know, I don't know him? If you know him or not. He I'm was not a sure. punk rocker. He was a punk rocker in Detroit. He was in a punk band. He's nah. that old. He's that old, huh? He's that old. He was in a punk band in 1977, I think, in Detroit. She's saying something. Anyway, no. So he he does that as well. But 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 That's the if, if, the essence of getting that love album sound, really sanctuary and all of those tracks. You know, it, it, the essence of it is some sort of Roland with the chorus on, mm. um, the inbuilt chorus of the amps. I've never found a chorus pedal that works the same. Nah, man, the JC120 just sounds it's, great. It, 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 there's nothing, I, there's a no. Roland do a chorus pedal now that I've got that's kind of like maybe kind of sort of, but it's still, you plug into it, literally, you plug into it a Roland JC120 or a JC77, and you have some sort of Marshall or Vox or something ballsy next to it, add a bit of delay and dial in a little overdrive, and suddenly you go, that's the sound right there. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's 90% of it. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Patrick Miller, thanks for the super chat. I saw Pete Thorne's video on the EL34s and could barely hear a difference. Is there a difference more discernible in person or really not that negligible? Are 12AX7 preamp tubes also very similar sonically? Well, he did a, a video on 12AX7s too, so watch that. Uh, well, 
to me, it's discernible. So, um, I mean, it's not it's not like different set of speakers, but uh, to me, it's discernible. But it's discernible in like the fringes of the notes and how 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 the tone breaks up and how it the 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 slight colors that it it gives you. People hear it differently, but it's discernible to me. Very. Don't listen on your phone. You won't hear it on the phone at all. Definitely don't listen. It all sounds the same on the phone. Right. Uh, Simon Hosford, regards from Oz. Uh, Love the big wide guitar sounds on the cult records. Isn't a wet, dry, wet setup when there is equal volume dry in all three cabs like with EVH, just essentially stereo with more dry? Well, the difference is that the dry is unaffected. So... Um, it's, it, there's nothing, the head, it's the head directly to the cabinet. So you're not getting any weird interaction on the notes with the, like, if you have delays going and stuff, you can get this weird sort of interaction. And if you do that kind of wet, dry, wet thing, that's just the center is just the pure amp. Right. Yeah. Just to. And that's so a good it, thing, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's a good thing. Just a way to do it, one way. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, sometimes you know you like to have an impure signal. That's that happenstance, yeah. dumb luck stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. as well as you know, and there's always good. You can always go pure. You know, um, I actually had a funny story about Eddie Van Halen when we were looking for producers. I went in because we were through Warner Records. I met Ted Templeman. Mm-hmm. And I asked him how he got... This was the time when we ended up getting Bob for Sonic Temple and we were doing the rounds because we were kind of being taken somewhat seriously in America as a, the next big thing. And met Ted Templeman. I remember he, he was explaining to me on that first Van Halen album what he did with Eddie's sound and how it sounds so large. And, you know, it was an interesting... I remember in, in his office in, in Warner's, meeting him and stuff um that was kind of interesting just quarter note stuff that tricks the ear into making the guitar appear you know which you know i cat candidly have fallen into myself without using any science or mathematics whatsoever Mm -hmm. but just that i learned it with steve there was another thing because i'm pretty as you know i'm pretty good pals with steve stevens and uh i remember that tour we did with billy idol and i and i kept going Every time Steve Stevens tops, stops playing, there's a little like happens afterwards. I'm like, he'll go, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, and then I realized that's why his guitar sounds gigantic, mm. is he's got that little kind of note delay ever so subtle that just expands the sound out and gives it the mm. width and the thing. I mean, that's. I used to do it with the JC120, you know, you put one speaker out of one side of the PA and one speaker out the other, you know, and um, I mean, you know how those, those they get that chorus sound, Dave, probably, don't you? Isn't it something to do with delaying one of the, that's why one of the speakers always blows on a JC120 because the signal, is there anything to do with that? Is that some kind of story I've picked up over the years? I don't, that's a good question. I don't, I've never even heard that one, but, um, 
Yeah, but I mean, so what that's how we achieve that chorus in that particular amp because it is very unique. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about with Steve, it was like he had a stereo echo on, and it, it would just uh, trail after you know he would stop playing. And yeah, that, that I mean, was very very common at the time, used by him, Eddie Van Halen, and a bunch yeah, of they people. All, you know. But it, and it all just made one guitar sound infinitesimally wider. Mm -hmm. Right, but I didn't know that. <laughs> Because yeah. I'd never played arenas, and every you know, roadies were usually our mates. Yeah, you know, we, you know, we were. It was all a big learning curve for me. Like I was trying to say, I kept my eyes and ears open, and was like, you know, when I wasn't drinking and up to shenanigans, I was learning a lot. Mm. You know, from people around and 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 just watching how it was done. You know, mm -hmm. that's great. Um, Fifty Mark Two. Thanks for the super chat. I have a JCM 800 1960 B 1986 with original V 30s, four by 12 sponge painted with white over original Tolex. I was told you owned it and used it on tour in the nineties, full on baffling Sharpie eight ohm written on the plate purchased from Howie Huberman. That, that, that there could be some truth in that. There could be some truth in that one. Um, I, I think um, yeah, it sounds it, it sounds legit. I can't one hundred percent confirm, of course, but um, that sounds yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a familiar name. It's a lot. I'm at that age now where it's like a lot of names come out of the past, and you haven't heard them for like thirty three years. I, I, going I, I, through I the, the filing cabinet <laughs> in the back of the head. Now, that's a name that it's like that name sounds familiar. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I went to high school with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> okay, that was a long time ago. And I, but all, I, I my, have... all my cabinets with that that cult stuff I said earlier when we were talking, all the I, I I got all the fronts of by the time we did Sonic Temple, when we went on tour, I had the fronts changed to look like vintage cabinets and the small mm. logo put on them. They're all basically mm. 1986 era. Marshall 4x12s with whatever speakers they came in. Mm. And then I just changed the fronts on them. I got them done in, I think it was a place called Axe Victim Audio in LA. I, I, you know, and they, they changed I remember the fronts them. To, to, yeah, to look vintage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one time I believe when the cult broke up the first time or we went on hiatus or whatever it was called, I had a bit of a sale at my lockup and I sold stuff like Duff McKagan bought a cabinet and Mike Dimkitch. And I, re I realized I used to have four by 12s in the pit of the arena so I could get feedback at the front of the stage. And they were powered off 200 watt solid state power amps off the back line, which mm -hmm. was six four by 12s all plugged in. All going, <laughs> so that was eight, and then somehow I ended up with thirteen. I remember at the time that I went down. I was got, I've got thirteen four by twelves. I don't really know what <laughs> I'm going to do with all this, you know. Awesome. And then some right. of it, Jonesy took some of it out on that Pistols tour in that, when they reformed in '96, I believe it was, or '97. Jonesy bought some stuff off me and painted a big cross of St George on them and. <laughs> I kept some though. I kept some gear from That's that era. Cool. So I think I pronounced uh, it's Maiko. Is that how you would Miko? say that? Miko? Or Miko? 
Well, I, think I, said Nico. I don't know. Michael. Yeah. Well, however, thanks for the super chat and thanks for uh, telling us. Um, let's see. Uh, it's this. So, Michael Thompson, thank you. It was a super tremolo plexi 100 watt. That was the amp that I showed you before that he says that he had. That was a nice watt. amp. You shouldn't have got rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I, oh, believe me. Believe me. Did Bob Rod tell you about the 1959 Les Paul flame top that I sold him for 10 grand? Oh. He probably didn't. He didn't tell you about that one. No. He, no. Who is this? He didn't tell you about that story. No. Um, yeah. I, as I said, I, that, that's probably my biggest error. I never particularly liked the guitar, um, but it was just at that point before Slash turned everything everybody wanted to get those guitars you know basically mm -hmm. slash started using them gnr blew up huge and all of a sudden everybody wants to stop playing them pointed sticks that look like a broomstick mm -hmm. and they want to get you know and i had this guitar i bought in london and it's in a couple there's a few live videos and i was on tv right around the electric tour and i had and it was a 59 and it had been re-lacquered you know, I bought it knowing it had been really lacquered, but it, believe, it was all original, and um, I just didn't get along with it, and I sold it to Bob. I also sold ten grand. Vulcan, <laughs> which, which ended up on Nothing Else Matters with a Metallica, if you know that big... That's, that's one of my, one uh. of my Vulcans. Um, and what else did Bob get off us? Oh, we got the white. I had a 1961 P bass that we used. That I I ended up buying, and then Jamie used it a lot. And um, but he didn't like the neck, so in the end, he ended up using a P body with a jazz neck because he had little hands. But Bob got that 61 P bass, well, which was like white. That was a killer bass. Bob still got it. <laughs> he, he gets rid of nothing. I'm telling you. Nope. <laughs> it's all great. it's all in his possession. He's got all that stuff. Uh, so Michael, thanks for the super chat. Uh, this is for you, Dave. Have you, have you built the Ken Fisher train wreck pedal schematic that I sent you? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I, you know what? I, <laughs> I barely have time to, to breathe <laughs> these days. I mean, I mean, I'm so busy. It's not even funny. Uh, it's just like the, there's people getting mad amp stacked to the ceiling. You know, it's just. <laughs> well, actually, no one's getting mad yet, but they will if I don't finish them. <laughs> uh, Greg G finally bought a, a Billy Duffy Falcon last year at the young age of 22, and I love it. Any updates on a Billy Duffy signature Les Paul or Black Falcon reissue? Ah, oh, well, welcome. Oh, good. Welcome. Welcome to the club. Um, I'm not sure we. I, I'd be open to when we did the reissue, we only made like 50, 40 or 50 black Falcons because I wanted it to be properly a limited edition. And people were like, oh, yeah, 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 we can get one. Well, you can't because there was only that many made. Um, but, you know, maybe we'll talk to Gretch. Um, I've, there's been a, a lot of talk that over the years, there's been talk with Gibson about doing a signature Les Paul, but it's never, it's just never come together. Um, the circumstances, there's always been some reason why and wherefore it's never happened. Um, 
you know, there's, there's nothing particularly unique or fancy about any of the Les Pauls I've, I've ever used. They're not, you know, I generally prefer Les Paul Customs. I, I have a couple of gold tops that I like, but I mean, if I had to pick one guitar that I would use, it'd be a, you know, a Les Paul Custom that didn't weigh 400 pounds, that, that, you know, just that, that's, to me, mm -hmm. to me, that's my favourite Les Paul. And I know many other people would disagree with me. Um, but there's nothing particularly fancy about what I would do, you know, um, with a Les Paul. And as regards, you know, as I say, the next thing hopefully we're going to pull together from Gretsch is this new um, Falcon Junior, which is, that's the new little toy that's coming. So keep an eye on my uh, BillyDuffy.com and we'll be revealing pictures. And um, I'm definitely going to do that in black. Cool. Awesome. Uh, Jordan Brooks, love the show, love the cult. Dave, I got a JJ Jr. from Sweetwater. <coughs> I was curious about the clean channel and if the three-way switch was just adjusting mids or if it's giving three flavors of an AC30. It's a simple, it's very simple. It's a three-way bright switch. Across the volume pot. All the clean channel is is a gain stage into the power amp. So there's nothing there. So it just uh, changes the, the bright frequency. Okay. Uh, nothing fancy. JTP773, <laughs> thanks for the super chat. Billy, will you please teach the younger guitar players what proper guitar height is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think what happened was that you know enough people have grown up now sitting on their laptop and even playing guitar sat down all the time yeah. that when they stand up they want the same relationship between their chin and the guitar as when they were sat down but you know i you don't, can't do I don't that. sound old you know i you know what I, I, yeah i i don't know i i just found it was always you know more heroic to have the guitar lower but you know it's like everything man you know it comes around long hair short hair flares skinny jeans it, you know stick around long enough you right. know it comes It'll down change. but um, I, I yeah i you know i i do i do notice though as guitar players age their choice of guitar becomes a little more friendly lighter and perhaps they start getting a bit thicker around the middle the, the guitar has to rise up with the, uh, you know, because I don't think if you, there might be something in the way, you know, you've got to make sure yeah. you're still getting in some sort of jeans that you could get in when you were 25. <laughs> That's true. You know, otherwise, otherwise, there's something in the way. Yep. <laughs> you got to wear it a little higher. It's funny, though, when you try, like my guitar tech, he has to have a special thing because he can't play the guitar as low as I have it. And he's a far better guitar player than I am, but he can't. He Matt. can't. He, he can't. He can't play. He has to have a special <laughs> thing when he works on my guitars, and then he hands it to me. And I'm like, "You've done the thing," and it's up here, and then it drops down. And but one <laughs> of the things I noticed with me is that I changed. Like as I got a bit older, I'm left-footed, but I'm right-handed, so I, I, I'm kind of do a bit of both. Like I throw left-handed. But I write right-handed and I play guitar right-handed. But I'm, I kick a 
football left. I'm I'm a bit mixed up like that. But so I can play the I played a wah wah with my left foot. Hmm. So that gives you kind of a nice heroic stance to, right. to swing the guitar <laughs> so you can get up the neck. Because and I look back in the eighties when when I was playing gigs if i see videos and i'm actually playing the wah wah right footed and that generally puts the guitar on your right thigh and almost round to the side it's just i can do both um but out of the last sort of 10 years i've mostly just played done the wah wah on my left foot and the guitar just sits in a good you know to keep yeah. playing your guitar low though as you get older it, it does take a bit of effort like you've really got to mean mean it to get up the neck you know, yeah, I can imagine. You got to attack it and move it a bit, <laughs> right? You know, Bless there's you a bit of him. there's a bit of choreography required. Yeah, uh, S. Hodges, thanks for the super chat. I think you've sent us a few of them. I really appreciate it. Um, and I think the question for Dave was, Dave, can you get a custom shop order? I'm not sure if that's, I guess, for the guitars. And right now, I think the answer is no, right? Custom shop guitars or amps? Amps, yes. Although at this point in time, who knows how long that's going to take? Um, guitars, right this minute, no. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of new challenges in making things and doing stuff uh, at post, post or ending of post COVID. the thing we're not going to mention. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole <laughs> thing, we're sick man. Of hearing about we it. Would, our wood prices have almost tripled. Really, to make cabinets tripled. So you got to remember. So that this, it's made out of Baltic birch. So that's a four by four sheet, not a four by eight sheet. So it, you know, it used to cost something like thirty eight dollars a sheet or something, and and now I think it's up around the seventy mark even higher it, that, it's insane is it because of shipping or and everything or? is that way a, li a little uh, processor chip that used to cost three dollars now is 14 this mark my words everyone you're gonna see an alarming price increases over the course of the next year on In everything on, on everything your 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 coffee makers everything <laughs> Everything, wow. you know, everything across the board, refrigerator, uh, whatever you're going to see. it. It's starting to happen now. Yeah. You heard it first on Toto. There's going yeah. to be a thing called inflation. <laughs> yes. Massive. You heard it here first. Mark my words. You will be hearing the word inflation a lot over the next three yeah. years. Hmm. That's Yay. coming down the pipe because of what Dave just said. Yeah. A lot of reasons it's, for it. It's going to be. It's coming. It's uh, it's it's interesting. Lead lead times on things that I have to order and things too. It used to be, oh yeah, that's uh, it'll be so so as whatever uh, six uh, two months or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's now six or seven months. Lead time on parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy, crazy. Um, I want to get through these because uh, I want to be. Respectful of your time, oh, really? really. Are you good? On yeah, time? yeah. Um, of course. I, I'm, I'm often guilty of when being asked about guitar players, and I don't sometimes mention 
the screamingly obvious guitar players like Jimmy Page, like Angus Young. Of course, they influenced yeah. me. Absolutely. Malcolm Young and Angus together. I had the great fortune to see them play in Manchester at the, the Free Trade Hall, I think in 1977. Oh, wow. And um, the part of the show was um, the bit where Angus and Bon would get off the stage and they'd go out the side of the theatre and come in back and go down the stalls. So you're at a venue that holds about 2,000, you know, with a small balcony and, you know, not the biggest venue, but not little. And I remember going by and then, of course, he's, Angus is on his shoulders, right? So everybody's trying to hit the guitar. I remember hitting his guitar once. So I would have been 77, I would have been 16. And um, I saw that show. That was pretty amazing. Um, and to be part of that. Yeah, Jimmy Page was always like, because of the tunings and stuff, it was always a bit otherworldly to me. I remember there was a kid in my neighbourhood in South Manchester who could play Black Dog. And uh, and I used to think of him as somewhat like another outer space being because how on earth could he, you know... <laughs> I was like, I was struggling, you know, I was, I was like trying to get my head around Thin Lizzy and the New York Dolls and Leonard Skinnerd, and, you know, I could just about get my brain around, you know, Bad Company maybe, but then Paige with his tunings and all that weirdness, mm -hmm. he just, you know, and then the time change on, I remember, and this kid used to, he used to work in a guitar store, that was it, and I'd go and obviously when you're young, in Manchester, and you've got nothing else to do and no money, you go to guitar stores and see what you might be able to steal or at least look at <laughs> and, um, you know, go and stare at a real Gibson guitar for, like, an hour because there's nothing else to do. And he worked in this guitar shop, I think, called A1 Music, and he could play Black Dog, and he also could play Now I'm Here by Queen, which, subsequently, I have learnt them both. Uh, now, now I'm nearly old enough for a bus pass, but at that time, watching somebody play that kind of music, I was astonished. And that even wasn't into any of the, like, the first Zeppelin album I got was Houses of the Holy. And my favorite Zeppelin song still to this day is Dancing Days. And, oh, yeah. and that's got that B-Bender thing. And, you know, it's just got, there's something about that song and, and Plant's vocals and the general swagger. And there's just, you know, I just love that. I, I don't know, it's my favourite. I know it's probably not a lot of people's favourite Zeppelin song, but it's mine. That's you know, but cool. but he was he was otherworldly. I mean, Jimi Hendrix, when I was when I was really young, um, they used to sell in my local newspaper shop vinyl on the stand, and it was generally they would make cheap copies of chart records. Same what it was with session musicians would be paid to go and record current hits. And they they press them and get them out really cheap and really quick. So you could buy six or seven songs off the charts for like no money done by session players and singers. And in amongst that with these weird albums, like there was a Jimi Hendrix live album. And like, bear in mind, you're talking about 13 years of age in South Manchester in like a little news agent shop. And there was a Bill Haley album. Uh, I, and I remember this stuff, it's like imprinted in my mind. And I remember playing the Hendrix, listening to the Hendrix record. It was a live album, one of the million dodgy bootlegs of his or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, that was amazing, you know. 
playing with that. I mean, he, I, I cannot imagine being in the same room watching Jimi Hendrix play. What effect that must have had on all those British guitar players like Page and Clapton and Beck and that, seeing him do his thing. Right. You know, and it, it must have been like many things, including horrifying. Because yeah, he, he was on just another other level. And, and, you know, I never really talk about that stuff. That was part of my growing up. But I, I could never, I, you know, I never. And then what happened was when I just about got competent on the guitar, punk happened. So that kind of made anybody my age, you know, in 1976, 77, it, you know, you made a choice, really. You know, am I going to get into punk or am I going to keep the long hair and, you know, stay wearing flares? I mean, it's just, you know, there was a big divide took place. Even right, in my yeah. high school band, you know, we uh, split down the middle, you know, the guys wanted to still play Neil Young songs and Fleetwood Mac. And, uh, you know, I was off, you know, trying to, work out how to play uh, Search and Destroy and, you know, Jet Boy by the New York Dolls. And that was right. that. Awesome. <laughs> um, Michael Torrin's got another super chat. Thanks, Michael. Billy, uh, you at times are seen playing a Black Falcon. Was this ever released as a signature guitar? I know we just talked about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it was. In short, short answer, yes, it was. It was just a limited edition run. It, it was 40 or 50 guitars. And and it was just a kind of a little thing you do just to kind of stimulate. Um, it it looks great in black. I kind of prefer it in black, really. Yeah, I mean, either way, that's great. I'll uh, take either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Taylor, I actually have always wanted a white falcon, though. Yeah, me too. That or uh, the old uh, uh, <clears throat> Gretsch uh, Duajet sparkle top mm. always kind of had well, a that's one of their too. classics yeah you know that, that i mean Gretsch have had some great yeah yeah they they've made some fantastic guitars you know gretch i uh when i was in england in in the 80s you know that was very early on in this conversation we talked about that and you know i used to hang around the vintage guitar shop in london in earl's court and uh it was one of the first places where they were curating old guitars and i remember they had a you know the the, the 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 preeminent Gretsch at the time I remember was the sixty one twenty, um, which was a model that everybody loved, and uh, I remember seeing one of those there. And you know, it, they, it, it, they've made some great guitars. Like I say, the Silver Sparkle Jet's always a classic, isn't it? it is. Yeah, it's awesome. Totally. I remember yeah. saying well, that Joe, Falcon, Pe Joe Perry was one. Yeah, well, Joe Perry with anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, so Joe cool. Perry could play any guitar and make it look cool because Joe Perry, when he had the Malin streak in his hair yeah, yeah. and was high as a kite, was yeah. the coolest person in the world of rock ever. <laughs> yeah. I know he was probably trying to thunders, but when I used to see Joe Perry, and, and luckily I got to know him and we've toured with him a bunch and um with Aerosmith and you know uh I've, you know I've got the got I had the pleasure of getting to know all of them and very kind and generous people but it was funny when I was a kid Joe Perry you know that era when Tyler used to wear the black and the the stripy like jester kind of outfit and mm -hmm. and Joe Perry was, and they 
it was just incredible watching that from like where I was at in England, thinking like, what these guys are just amazing. With with was it what did Perry have? He had the was it an upside down strap with a telecaster neck? Yeah. Right? Exactly. But, but right. Played right handed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What what did he do? Come on, you you've got loads of guitars behind you. Do you, do you know do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it was a left-handed. Think, it was a it was a left-handed body, played right-handed played with a right tele neck. So that so yeah. it was upside down. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a left-handed guitar, I think, with a tele, left-handed tele neck, or was the tele neck straight? The tele neck. Oh, I don't was remember. Straight. I have to look again. I think what the tele. I think the tele neck was a righty neck, on a lefty, a lefty body. Body on a lefty yeah. body. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, you just, it just, you know, it doesn't get any cooler. Joe Perry, yeah. the coolest guy ever, ever. Yeah, and great player, great player too. Very, um, well, so actually, so's um, Brad Whitford. That was another thing I learned. Oh yeah, that when Brad gets to do his solo, he's uh, Brad's got some chops. Or he had. I mean, we haven't played with them for several years, but I remember. I mean, I used to go and watch him every night and. You know, occasionally they dig out a real old oldie, you know, when in between doing their, you know, contemporary hits and that. And then they'd go deep and they'd like rats in the cellar had come out or something. Or they'd do something odd just to, and it was just great to watch them, you know. Yeah, great band. Um, epic show tonight, guys. Billy's a great guest thank and great you, player. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And going through all the super chats. Simon Hosford, thanks for the super chat. I understand the dry is pure straight from the amp and is desirable. Why not then use 100% wet in the sides to give the front of the house? Thanks, guys. Well, yes, that's another way of doing it, uh, and it is done that way. But here's the thing. If you have three 4 by 12 cabinets, and even if you turn all the effects off, you got three 4 by 12 cabinets going. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. it's automatically big uh yeah, yeah. you know uh it, it, it's just a bigger rock a rock tone you know bigger thing i mean i my 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 general experience with sound guys is they want as much control over the sound you're giving them off stage as possible so they would always want the dry one because right. yeah be know, that they, good or bad yeah, well, be that good or bad, if you trust the guy, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. Now, yeah, that could be a train wreck, too. Well, indeed, but if you if you trust the guy, he, you know, he can then accommodate using the delays, his delays with the PA and make it work as part of the ensemble. Mm -hmm. And then your effects, your echo on stage really is for my ears and to get me inspired, you know, mm -hmm. to get me to perform well and feel good. You know, I always like always will have two four by twelves going and they're usually split apart. So basically it's like a set of headphones coming behind me. Mm. And then I'll put usually whatever little combo I'm using goes in the middle. Um, and a lot of people are like, Oh man, you get an amazing sound. You've got a Vox AC 30. What? I'm like, no, there's two amps hidden behind the four by twelves. I just don't have them on stage. <laughs> You know, so I like, I like, I, there's a school of thought where in recording, I, you know, I use one four by 12 or one two by 12 or whatever works to sound, but live, I just like the two cabinets 
I like the head running two cabinets. It just uh, gets me excited on stage. That's cool. Um, Timothy Cohen, uh, thanks for the super chat. When did okay. when you did Electric, you rented ten Marshalls. Chose the best yeah. to record on the album. Do you remember what models the amps were? JMPs, JCM, stock. I honestly can't remember. I, I, I'd love to be able to say I remember. Um, I do know that I like J. What's the one that is it? I've ne I don't know whether I've owned one. The J JMP. That's the one where they went to the big logo, but they still had yeah. cut out of the. And they have the corner protectors. Yeah. It was kind of late seventies into the early eighties. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, such as it is, I think that's a really good Marshall for a guy like me. You know, if I was to go for a stock off-the-shelf yeah. Marshall, I believe that that era mm -hmm. um, was a really good era for amps. But I can't remember what we used. I do remember, you know, that I, I was just trying to illustrate the, the extent that which sound engineers will go to. Another thing Andy Wallace did with the Marshalls that I don't remember what they were, he there was a long time spent backing off the game just to the point where I, I was like, I was beginning to panic and lose confidence yeah. because I wouldn't have any sustain. But but in turning down the saturation, it actually expanded out the sound of the guitar. Yeah. It got bigger. And that's is... the antithesis of what I call the guitar center tone, which is all that front end sizzle saturation. There's no real work being done by the amp. Yeah. There's no real power being done it's all kind of fake and i remember that and, and and a long time being spent once we isolated the two best amps backing off the game till we got you know the closest i mean there was no absolutely no mystery i mean i'll tell anybody who asked me rick rubin had highway to hell on cd and anytime andy wallace had a question about how to make anything sound he just pointed to that <laughs> and went, how should the symbols should the guitar be <laughs> and that's you know I mean we, we had a very limited remember Rick was only supposed to cut one song and mix yeah, the right. whole album and we kind of created a lot of panic and discontent back in London by calling up the management going um so got something to tell you you know like we were going to remix the album well we've actually recorded half of it again and uh, it's very different sounding, and off, and, and they all came over on a plane. And, oh, really? and to our great, to the credit to, to Martin Mills, who's the guy that owns Beggars Banquet, he came, and our managers at the time, Ian Grant and Alan Edwards, they flew out, and they were like, "Oh wow!" They weren't like, "What are you doing? You're insane!" They all got behind it, and and it was a really good, uh, it was a good experience, you know. That's great uh timothy cohen another super chat thank you how did you hook up with harry colby uh, what did you like about his mods does okay. steve jones have those amps and how do your freemans differ more awesome okay i can answer all of that um harry colby was a friend of when we when we got a new american manager called howard kaufman um, who's passed sadly passed away he he had an assistant and um a japanese girl and she knew harry colby 
it from New York. It was just a, a happenstance. And she overheard me saying something about me not liking the sound of my amps or these are not, I'm not digging these. And she said, oh, my friend, Harry. And that's literally how stupid and dumb luck that was. She just happened to know him from New York and we sent the amps off and they came back better. Um, and, and, and his mods, he just made the, the amps have more bottom end, more, more percussive sound. And he made them, he did a gain thing. They used to saturate a little bit more, but in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, Steve Jones doesn't have those amps because I got them back off him. And um, I only own one of them now. One of them blew up and was just whatever. And then I sold a couple recently and I've got one. And, um, well, what I will say without wanting to blow Dave Friedman's head any bigger is that I use his amps now. I am a, I am a paying customer, I might add. Right, Dave? You are a paying customer, yes. Of Dave's amps. I would say um, without, and not because he's here, I use them because they're great. Simple as that. I've not found a better sounding. How do I want to phrase this? If you imagine the best quote unquote martial sound you ever heard, that's what a Friedman can give you. Mm -hmm. That's that's in my opinion. I agree with you. Uh, Patrick Miller. Thanks for the super chat. Did the new JC120 sound as good as the vintage ones? Okay. Um, well, I, generally the vintage ones are so battered now that it's hard to tell because their speakers take a hell of a beating from the chorus effects and the bottom end of that. Um, so I, I would say one thing I can tell you is that the new ones, they, the chorus is adjustable. So you have the classic setting on and then it's adjustable, which is nice because you can make back it off and make it a bit more subtle. And the distortion is is actually not terrible. Whereas on the old ones, it was just uh, not a not a it was just awful. It was unusual. So there's a few things about the new ones I like. I've never really done a back to back head-to-head -head old one because every time I've seen an old one that they, they, they're just kind of destroyed mm. um, so I couldn't honestly give you a give you an opinion um, I mean they're solid-state amps so there's a limit to how much the factors inside them can change right that's true uh, Pete Thorne what's up Pete uh, thanks for your question yeah. I saw GNR open for the cult in 87 or so. No one knew who GNR were yet. I did, but nope. they were just about to explode. Killer show. They were, were the yeah, they were great. Nobody had heard of them. And as I said, Ian turned me on to them, and they were about to go. We, they did their first tour with us. That was the first time they'd been, quote, unquote, on tour. They'd obviously done gigs and been to but get on a tour bus and go out for a while. And, um, you know, they were the real deal uh, then, you know, they, they were the authentic real deal for what they did, you know, that they, it was, uh, and they lived it, you know what I mean? It was, uh, it was a, lot, a lot of fun on tour. They lived, uh, they, they did, uh, they did what they said they did on the box, you know, there was no fakery there. <laughs> That's great. Um, 
I'm looking to see if there's any more questions. Did you see any, Dave? Uh, I'm looking to right now. Now I think that's about it, I think. Oh, crap. There's oh. a Black Falcon release. I can hear my money leaving my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> well, not exactly what I did. They sort of. Yeah. Uh, there's one question here. Please ask Billy about his Gibson Les Paul custom that almost was. He showed a pic of it on his Facebook account four to five years ago. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As I say, I've, I've been close with Gibson on a couple of occasions. I I have a Les Paul custom that's now my number one, a black one, that was one period where they made, um, they wanted to do a signature model. Because this is the thing, on the front of Sonic Temple, the guitar is a black Les Paul custom. Mm -hmm. And I can tell it's not mine because it, I think I borrowed it for the photo shoot because mine was with the guitar maker having the front taken off and finished like a Mick Ronson thing. I had mm -hmm. like, oh, let's make a guitar like Mick Ronson's just as a mad idea, right? And I remember, I think I borrowed that guitar um, and so Gibson were like, well, it's a black one on the front of Sonic Temple. I'm like, yes, but every gig and every video, if you look at Firewoman or all of the videos, I mostly use the wood-fronted ones because the photo shoot happened before the tour. Anyway, so, so but I mean, Gibson, they, they, we, we've been close. I'd love to be able to do one. Um, that we, we did a wood-fronted one. There's nothing really, you know... Honestly, there's nothing really that unique about the way I did it. It's just a wood front um, with, with you know, I have certain kinds. Of, I like the age nickel hardware. Um, you know, you, pickups are very – I've been using the 498T pickup from Gibson, which I quite like. Um, I, there are others, but, you know, there's nothing particularly um, – you know, unique or special about it, or, or, over the, over than that that no pickup covers, no pick guard. You know, all the stuff I learned by looking at Thin Lizzy and was like, nobody uses a pick guard. You know, nobody nobody has pickup covers on, and better mm -hmm. take them off. I didn't know why you took them off. You just took them off because they look cool. <laughs> it looked cool, exactly. You know, yeah, less is always more. You know. Uh, let's make this the last question. Uh, any favorite speakers? Just ones that work. <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I don't have a particular model. I like, I, I, you know, you know, generally Celestians. I would think, you know, anything in the Celestian family. I've definitely used unfashionable Celestian speakers and got decent sounds out of them, as well as using, you know, the uh, legendary, you know, twenty-five watt, thirty watt. I just use a bit of you know, recording wise. Um, and, and it's just kind of preference too, but, but oh, I, Celestian's definitely a good way to, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Cool. Well, Billy, I can't thank you enough for your time being on the show. You're fantastic. Uh, good not only chat. You're amazing, good amazing, amazing musician and uh, artist, but you're also a great human. So thanks for uh, being on the show. Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right guys. well pleasure chatting yeah hang on one second while we say goodbye if you don't mind all just right. one more minute uh sure. our next show is on may 8th with uh dan gower 
Mm-hmm. And then on May 21st is Tom Bukovac. Uh, confirming that with Tom, but I think that's when it is. Then we'll have our 100th show, and we'll announce who that big guest will be. Uh, I'm also in, in talks with uh, Dweezil Zappa, uh, Mark Farner. Uh, if you guys know Mark Farner from um, Grand Funk Railroad, now um, he's going to be on the show. Wow. Uh, Greg Fiddleman, uh, Wayne Kramer. Uh, and also uh, the guys from Two Notes. So we've got a lot of great stuff coming up, guys. Um, all right. So everybody have a great weekend. Dave, have a good weekend. Everyone. Billy, See you guys. Hang on one second, Billy. We're just going to sign off. And say yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Uh, okay. Kale Joe wants to know, what is that amp behind me? That is a modded uh, right there. That's a modded marshall uh 1987 reissue that i did that dave modded for me stock is kind of mod so yep all right guys have a great weekend thank you